Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Good morning. My name is Rob Heron, and I'm the assistant pastor here, and I want to welcome you again to Redeemer. What is Redeemer? Redeemer is a church, and that means that we are a community of people that are trying to learn how to love God and trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God. He is the Messiah, and he's come to reveal the love of the Father. And so we gather every week in worship to rest in his love that has been given, disclosed. And as we rest in his love, we then delight to gather together at Meat Wave and around tables, other meals, but primarily in prayer and in reading the word of God so that we might remind one another of the great love God has shown to us. And as we rest in his love and as we remind one another of his love, we delight then to gather together in service to reflect that love to our families to our friends and to our neighbors here in Urban and University, Knoxville. That's who we are. We're a community of people trying to learn how to love God, trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, remind, and reflect in his love. And to help us do that, we are this summer studying the Psalms of Ascent. These were pilgrim songs, songs given by God to his people so that they might sing them and live them as they made the journey up toward Jerusalem and his temple. And these songs are not just old and dusty, they are just as much for us. These are songs for us to learn, to sing, to inhabit, to live out as we follow Jesus in his kingdom. And this morning we're learning how to sing this song of confession, Psalm 130, that you can find in your bulletin, or it's in one of the Bibles that may be close by, or you can look on with someone else. So let's read together Psalm 130, a psalm of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me for the teaching? Father, we ask that you would show us the truth and that the truth would set us free. In this we ask in the name of Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. What's it like to have someone deliver what they say is very good news and it sounds like very bad news? 
What's it like when you have a close friend come to you and they say they have really good news and they proceed to tell you about something they're, they're planning on doing and it sounds like a very bad, even horrible thing for them to do. Good news is bad news. What's it like for you who are parents if your child comes to you and they've got really good news that they've created a, an art project on their wall in Sharpie? Very good news, bad news. Or your child comes to you and says that they know exactly what they want for Christmas, and it's, it's August. And so you're going to be hearing this extended, growing Christmas list over the next five months. Good news really sounds like bad news. And I think this is strikingly similar to the way that we experience the Bible's bursting excitement to tell us what it says is really good news. It's really good news. And it sounds like bad news. What is the news? Tim Keller, who was a pastor in New York City, he wrote about this, this encounter, this a conversation he had with a man who'd experienced a fractured marriage. And this man came to Tim Keller looking for guidance. And here is what Tim Keller said to this man. He said, I said what he needed more than anything was hope. He quickly agreed and asked how he could get some. As gently as possible, I said that the good news was he was a sinner. The good news that Tim Keller gave to this man, the good news that the Bible is bursting with excitement to share with us, it starts with this news. You are a sinner. Now, that sounds a lot like really bad news. I think the fact is that for so many outside of the Christian church and for many within the church, what the Bible presents as very good news sounds so much like purely bad news. You are a sinner. Isn't that the kind of news that if you internalize that, if you believe it, it's going to lead to self-loathing? It's going to heap shame onto the core of who you are? It's going to lessen wholeness and freedom and happiness? Maybe it's even going to make you into the kind of person who looks down on others. You look at others and you say, you are a sinner. Because if that were the case, then this is not only bad news, it's bad in itself. And if it's bad, if it's that bad, then it should be rejected outright. Right? Well, what I want to persuade us this morning is to see that what the Bible presents as very good news is actually good news. Good news, you are far worse than you know. Good news, you are far worse than you know. And what I want to consider is that confessing this news, or in other words, confessing sin is good in three specific ways. It's good because it makes us low, it makes us long, and it makes us light. Confessing this news, confessing sin, it makes us low, it makes us long, and it makes us light. And I need to clarify, when we're talking about confessing, or in other words, acknowledging sin, there's so many things we could say about how we confess it and when we confess it and to whom we confess it. And those are very important questions. What I want to do this morning is for us to consider the motivation for confessing. My aim is that you would leave this morning wanting to confess sin. It might seem like a tall order, 
but I think the Bible is up for it. So first, let's see how confessing this news, it makes us low. And on immediate reading of Psalm 130, it's, it's clear that the psalmist, at least, he believes this claim. You are far worse than you know. We see that in the way that he understands his position, the position of who he is before God. It's a low position. So look there at verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. It's kind of like he envisions himself at the bottom of an ocean looking far up at the surface. He envisions his posture before God like there's an infinite gap between himself and God. And this distance, at least on some level, is a product of just him being a human being and God being God. But it's more than that. He's not just comparing his nature. He's comparing his moral nature before God. And what that tells him is that he is a sinner. And what does that mean? Does that mean that he's just done a bunch of bad things? Probably, just knowing ourselves, but it's far more than that. Here again is Tim Keller speaking about what sin really is. Sin is the despairing refusal to find your deepest identity in your relationship and service to God. Sin is seeking to become oneself, to get an identity apart from him. So much deeper than simply doing certain things or not doing other things, sin is a sickness. It's a sickness because it involves us seeking to know and find ourselves apart from him, which leads to estrangement from him when we were crafted by him and made for him to know ourselves in light of him and being his. That's health. And so when he looks at himself, he sees himself as a sinner. It makes him low. And so from that low position having his soul wrapped up in this sickness, he cries out for mercy. He confesses in verse three, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If God's way of relating to us were to note not only what we've done or left undone, but to look at who we really are, and if he were to judge us simply on that, who could stand? Who could relate to God with anything but dread and doom? But that's not the way God treats us. That's not the way God relates to us. And that's, since that's not the way God has treated us, it actually is good news. You are far worse than you know. And it's good news because it makes you low. And why is that such good news? If you are an aspiring musician, or you're just a musician by hobby, you know that it can be really difficult listening to other people play music without just endlessly critiquing what they're doing or, or kind of com jealously comparing yourself to them. But it can be incredibly freeing to be in the presence of an artist who just very clearly transcends you, far outstrips you, is high above you. So if you listen to Gary Clark Jr. play guitar, you're far more likely to stop critiquing, be quiet, and enjoy the beauty, enjoy the moment. Or if you're something of an athlete, love to hear what that's like. Maybe you go out with your friends and you're playing pickup football and you can't stop yourself from getting overly competitive with them and with your neighbors and just comparing yourself to them and feeling bad about it. But if you're tossing the pigskin around with Joe Milton, you are far more likely to stop comparing, laugh at yourself, and then just enjoy the moment. You would be made low in the presence of Bazooka Joe. And that would be a good thing, would it not? It would actually be good. 
Acknowledging our sin, even our sinfulness, makes us low because it clarifies our position before God. We're not just people who have done a few things we shouldn't have done and left a few things undone. There is a sickness wrapped around our souls that pulls us away from health, pulls us to seek our identity apart from God. And if God were to treat me only with justice, I would be lost. And this is in the truest sense of the word, humbling, in the actual sense of the word, humbling. And is that actually a good thing? To be humbled, to be made low, doesn't that make you self-obsessed and constantly saying awful things about yourself? No, because authentic humility is self-forgetfulness. It's acknowledging that God is infinitely high above me, and if you were to treat me according to my sins, I would be lost. But to recognize that he has not treated me according to my sins, but he has heard my cry for mercy. He has extended his ear, and he has sent Jesus down to lift me up so that I would know his smile as my father. And he does that as a pure outpouring of his abundant mercy and kindness. And that's who you are in Jesus. And this shows us why it's such good news to confess your sins. It's so good to be brought low because you forget yourself. You don't obsess over yourself. Instead, you are allowed, freed up to enjoy God's presence, to enjoy his promises, to enjoy being his, and to be one in whom he has poured out his free delight. And, and if God, instead of judging you in Jesus, delights to give you his favor, favor, if he has not condemned you, then all other judgments are dirt, which means that you no longer have to compare yourself to others. Being brought low allows you to be free, to live your life. And being brought low, instead of making you a pride-filled judge of others, it actually frees you up to be brought low and see others, see yourself on the same plane, needing the same brand and the same measure of God's kindness as everybody else. And isn't that good? Confessing sin makes you low, which we should want. It's good news. You are far worse than you know. It's good news. So that's the first thing, it makes us low, but second, it makes us long. And by long, I don't mean want, or here I'm talking about long-suffering or patient, but it's another L and it worked, preacher's trick. So what do I mean by that? How does making our confession of sin make us long? Confessing sin is essentially uncovering. It's uncovering the things that we have done to violate God's standard of holiness, but it's also uncovering the vulnerable self to God for his rendering of judgment. And for the psalmist, the act of uncovering, it makes him long. It makes him patient, long-suffering. So read there in verse 5. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. He cries out for mercy, and then his soul goes quiet waiting for God to grant forgiveness, waiting for him to respond. Confessing our sins is like stepping out over a ledge. And if all that was there were your confession, you would sink into the deepest of depths. But he doesn't wait for destruction. That's not what he's waiting for. He is waiting, he says in verse 5, with hope. Hope in God's word. He waits for what he can't see because who has hope in what he can already see. Instead, he waits with a, a concrete hope that God will do 
what he said he'll do. And what has God said? In Isaiah 55, God invites the sinner, return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So the psalmist waits for the Lord, he confesses in verse 6. You can see there, more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. So one commentator on this verse says this phrase, more than watchmen for the morning, combines intense yearning with confident hope. He yearns for God to deliver on his promise, to show compassion and grant forgiveness. And that's coupled with this expectant confidence that God will do it. In the same way, a a watchman on a wall in the ancient world would look out, protecting the city at night, would yearn for the morning so he could end his shift, but he would know that the morning was coming. The psalmist is saying, that's how much I yearn for God to grant forgiveness, and that's how confident I am that it will come. But notice he says even more, more than the watchman knows that the sun's going to rise, he knows that God will do what he said he's going to do. And so confessing his sin, exactly because he's confessed his sin, the psalmist is made long. He's made patient. His faith has longevity. Some of our book clubs, or all of our book clubs right now, have been reading a book by John Mark Comer called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It's a book club plug right there. And one quote from the book has really stood out to me where Comer says this about hurry. Hurry and love are incompatible. All my worst moments as a father, a husband, and a pastor, even as a human being, are when I'm in a hurry. And that resonates with me because I'm very often the most impatient person that I know. And that's directed at myself, hurrying myself, giving up on a a new hobby when I fail the first time or when I can't be good at it immediately. There's too many fishing rods in my house to prove that more than I need to prove that I give up too easily. It's also directed externally, externally biting at my kids when they don't immediately understand and obey my multi-step commands. It's directed at my wife when I whine about us getting to a movie merely on time rather than being 10 minutes early like I like to be. It's directed at the world when within my soul or out of my my mouth, I am screaming at a car in front of me for having the audacity to turn slowly right. Who does that when they should know that I have somewhere I desperately need to be on the double? And I really don't. Hurry is an impediment to love. We all know this. But hurry is also an impediment to peace. Rather than making us long, long-suffering, patient. Hurry both reflects the worry in my heart and it fuels that worry and it makes me short-sighted, short-tempered, short on patience. Hurry is bad news. It's bad stuff. And, And I think the more that we look at hurry as bad news, we can understand what good news confession of sin really is. And of course, this sounds counterintuitive because we think If we make a practice of confessing our sin, it's going to lead us to to living with a view of God like he is some angry and abusive parent saying, I told you to clean up your room. I told you five times. You need to get it done now or else. But is that the way the psalm presents God to us? No, far from it. It presents God as profoundly patient with us, not screaming with us, instead bearing with us. 
God knows that we are desperate for his grace and mercy, and only he has the power and, and, the, and the grace to deliver us from our sin and pardon us from it. And he gives that to us over and over again in infinite amount. And on top of that, God, of course, has the power where he could just zap our sin immediately and it could be done with. And yet God, his plan is for our sin to be put to death progressively over the long haul throughout our lives. Why? So that we might learn to grasp his patient heart toward us. He wants us to know his patience. And knowing his patience, he wants us to wait for him, to wait with yearning for him to do what he has said he will do in us. And to wait with the confidence of knowing that even more surely than the sun's going to come up, he is doing his work in me. And so confess your sin. Come to him because he's patient. He bears with you. He's not begrudging. He delights to again and again pour out his kindness upon you. And the more that we, we learn this patience and grasp this, this patience, we will become patient. This, this, God's patience will be directed internally. We will more and more not imagine God screaming at us, clean up your room, but we will see that God has borne with us and his mercies are new every morning. Every single morning, they're new, the exact same. Just as delighted, just as powerful. And the more I grasp how patient God has been toward me, the more that patience gets directed at others. The more I can, can look at others, and rather than looking at them through the lens of hurry up and change now, I can see them through the lens of how God has treated me with this long suffering, this loving patience. And by God's spirit, I can be willing, even delighted, to bear with others, because that's how God has treated me. It frees us. God's patience frees us from the trap of, of hurrying ourselves and hurrying others and trying to hurry everything. Instead, we get to live in, in this, this new life of seeing that God, he, his mercies are new every morning. His steadfast love is eternal. Isn't that good news? Confessing sin, it makes us low, it makes us long. Good news, you are far worse than you know. And last, let's look. Confessing sin makes us light, makes us light. When we think of a person who's continually aware of sin, what do we think that person is like? Maybe we picture that person as Dobby from Harry Potter, right? We think of this person as someone who, being aware of the ways that he has disappointed his abusive and angry master, physically and psychologically beats himself. Bad elf. Is it the way that we think that we will be if we are continually aware of sin? Well, let's compare that with the way the psalmist presents himself in this psalm. Look at verse 7. He's confident enough in the Lord's faithfulness that he invites others to trust the master he serves. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. In verse 8, he concludes with this steadiness, this restedness that God will forgive and deliver, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So does this sound like someone who is weighed down with a heavy burden of shame? No, it sounds like someone who's been made light. It sounds like someone who's been liberated, set free, even joyfully hopeful. And this helps us make sense of the really maybe strange phrasing in verse 4, which you can see there. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. 
It's God's gracious and powerful forgiveness that, that leads us to the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord, which includes confession of our sin, is not some dreadful head hanging low under a cloud of doom. Instead, it's a waiting and a wanting of God's forgiveness, his mercy, which makes us light because God has promised us it and because God grants it abundantly in Jesus. It's, to our surprise, it's not covering our sin. It's not rejecting the idea of sin that liberates us, that lightens us. It's uncovering it before God that lightens us. I mean, in general experience, we know that lying and covering things up, it doesn't actually make you more free. It burdens you. The lies that we tell, the things that we cover up, they accumulate in our souls and they weigh us down. And this is the, the reality that the Avid brothers get so right in their song, The Weight of Lies, where they say, the weight of lies will bring you down and follow you to every town because nothing happens here that doesn't happen there. When you run, make sure you run to something and not away from, because lies don't need an airplane to chase you anywhere. If you deceive and cover up, you won't be able to escape it. If you go from Knoxville to Honolulu, that weight will go with you and will remain a weight. And compare that with the movie Flight with Denzel Washington, where at the end he is, he's in this courtroom and he confesses in front of the courtroom and to the entire world that he piloted an aircraft while drunk. And he uncovers this, this weighty secret of decades-long addiction. And at the end of the film, in prison, we hear his voice say this, I had reached the limit. I had reached the limit of lies. And this is going to sound real stupid coming from a man in prison, but for the first time in my life, I'm free. Lying might keep you out of prison, but it won't actually make you free. It's uncovering the truth, uncovering reality that can bring a transformational experience of freedom. But how, if that's true in a general sense, how much more true is that if the greatest weight we carry around is our sin? Even if we reject the word sin as some oppressive relic of religion, we can't escape its weight. Which is, is true why there is this strange persistence of guilt. It's interesting that there's a strange persistence of guilt, arguably even an increase of it in cultures where there's a complete denial of shame and guilt as real categories. And why would that be the case? Why would it be the case that even if I reject that sin is, is an actual thing, that I might still be weighed down with this inexplicable, strange persistence of guilt? The Bible's answer, at least, is that sin weighs us down. But covering up sin weighs us down, not only with the weight of our sin, but also with the weight of lies, the weight of deceit. John Stott, who was an Anglican pastor, wrote, to cover our sins is to court spiritual ruin, destruction of our souls. And what's the good news? If we bring the weight of reality, if we bring the weight of the lies, the weight of the sin, the things that we have done and left undone, the ways we have sought to find and know ourselves apart from God, the weight of the estrangement we know with God, if we bring that before him, we uncover it, asking for mercy, we can leave it with him because he has applied to it the blood of Jesus. 
And because he has done that, not only can we bring it all and leave it with him, we can leave it with him entirely and we get to leave light. No more condemnation, no more guilt. It can all stay with him because of what Jesus has done. And what this shows us is this surprising, the surprising truth, the confession with this God is freedom. It's real freedom. Because when you uncover your sins to God, he covers it. You uncover it and he covers it with his mercy that he has shown to us through the blood of Jesus. And what could be weightier? What could be weightier than the blood of the Son of God? The Apostle John writes, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. When you confess to this God, you are exhilaratingly freed to uncover. No no more hiding, no more pretending, no more proving. No, you get to live with the freedom that comes each time you confess, remembering that you are forgiven because of what Jesus has done. When you confess, you get to remember who you really are, the God to whom you belong, who demonstrates his love in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We get to remember this is who I am. How light, how good is that? And the more that I confess this, confess to this God, how could I not want to confess the full weight of my sins to this God? And as I do that, how could I not want to confess my sins to one another, to you who share the same identity, sinners saved by grace? As we do this, we will want to confess our sins together, to sing our sins together, sins together, and to live out this confession because through this confession, we get to this double truth. You are far worse than you know, and you are far more loved than you ever dared to dream. You are far worse than you know, and you are far more loved than you ever dared to dream. As we confess, our hearts are made low and long and light to confess this together. And that brings us to this table. Because at this table, we confess and we remember the truth. We come to this table desperate for God's grace and mercy, and we come yearning and with a confident expectation that he will fill us to the full with his grace and mercy. We come to this table sinners and justified, beggars and guests at the banquet.